Travis Bader, and this is the Silvercore Podcast. Silvercore has been providing its members with the skills and knowledge necessary to be confident and proficient in the outdoors for over 20 years, and we make it easier for people to deepen their connection to the natural world. If you enjoy the positive and educational content we provide, please let others know by sharing, commenting, and following so that you can join in on everything that Silver Horse stands for. I want to take a moment to reflect on the life of Paul Rogan, who recently passed, and who founded and produced the Canadian Access to Firearms newspaper since 1984. My friend Donovan is carrying on the legacy that Paul created by continuing publication of the newspaper, Canada's largest print buy and sell for the shooting sports. For those who are interested, I've put a link in the description. If you've ever had an interest in optics, whether scopes, binoculars, thermal, night vision, and more, you're in luck. Today I'm joined by the dark lord of optics himself. Welcome to the Silvercore podcast, Ilya Koshkin. Well, thank you for having me. And it's a self-proclaimed dark lord of optics, although I did not really come up with that. <laughs> well, I'm going to ask you about that in a little bit, yeah. but... For the listeners, for those who aren't aware, Ilya is an optical physicist who has a talent for taking complex ideas and problems and relaying them in the most simplistic way so that they're understandable by everyone. He does this through his website and YouTube channel named The Dark Lord of Optics and thedarklordofoptics.com. And I'm going to have links to that in the description so you guys can check it out. Now, Ilya, I received an email from a good friend of mine and past Silvercore podcast guest, Paul Ballard, who in turn got the email from firearms instructor and mutual friend, Curtis Melichuk saying, you have to check out this Ilya fellow. I did. And the content that you provide is amazing. And so I jumped at the chance to have you on the, as a guest here. Amazing. I don't know either one of those guys. (laughs) No, you probably don't. I probably should. (laughs) Well, you know, Ilya, we spoke off air about kind of the best way to get this information across and. We're talking about breaking this into segments and where we do a general overview of you and what you're about and uh, a bit about optics and what people should be thinking about. And we can follow this up at a later point with questions that people might have more specific to optics. And you're talking about more of a, uh, sort of a, a whiteboard lesson, uh, where mm-hmm. we get into the ins and outs of what, what people should be looking for in optics and a bit of an education there. So, uh. We'll, we'll have that available at a later date as well. Sounds like a good plan. So Ilya, can you tell me a little bit about yourself and how you got into this wonderful world of optics? Uh, three letters, OCD. <laughs> uh, no, uh, it was kind of a funky story. Uh, I'm an optical physicist by education. Uh, I have a degree in applied physics from a place called Caltech in California. But not on uh, what we call classical optomechanical systems like rifle scopes. My field of expertise is actually electro-optics, uh, image sensors, cameras, um, surveillance systems, targeting systems. I've worked on things that are up in space, uh, flying on drones, uh, that kind of stuff. I, when I was in college, I purely by accident uh, ended up getting into guns and shooting. Mm-hmm. Mostly because I don't handle failure very well. A friend of mine dragged me out to a shooting range. We rented a gun. I fired five shots at the target from, I think, seven yards. Uh, uh, not a single shot did even touched paper. Oh, no. Uh, so I think I mentioned that I don't handle failure very well. Mm-hmm. So fast forward 25 years, 
here we are. But basically, I started shooting, right? I bought a handgun, I bought a rifle, I bought a cheap Chinese uh, scope to put on that rifle, and it uh, promptly fell apart. Mm. I hit the internet looking for, uh, looking for information, and the stuff I got... It's a nice way of saying this. Let's go with <laughs> asinine. I think that does not get anybody demonetized. Um, and here's the catch. I didn't know much of anything about rifle scopes, but I had a good background in optics. Mm. Uh, so I started digging, took a couple apart, uh, bought a couple here and there, and I started uh, uh, talking about my impressions and comparing optics and trying to explain why everybody else is wrong and I'm right. Something about OCD <laughs> that makes me want to do that. Uh, but in this case... Most other people were wrong, and I was right. Mm -hmm. uh, for a simple reason that I did not approach this from a shooter standpoint, I approached it from a nerdy guy standpoint. Okay. And that was different enough. Uh, when the company called SWFA uh, up in Texas, they have a forum called Optics Talk. That's where I somehow landed, purely by accident. Mm -hmm. uh, they reached out to me and said, hey, um, we like what you do with optics and we will offer you a deal. And the deal was that whatever they had in stock, I was able to purchase at a reasonable discount, so I could play with it, do a review, sell it, uh, then sell it and not lose money. And that's really what got me into this. Mm. Okay, so I owe it all to a significant degree to SWFM, still friendly with them, they're good people. And um, I started basically writing things up and it uh, went from there. I uh, Then at some point I got tired of repeating myself on different forums, so I started mm -hmm. a website where I could write this up, uh, post it, and then link to it. Mm -hmm. And then I uh, did another website because I needed a better blogging function. That's the darklordofoptics.com. I started a YouTube channel purely by accident. Once again, after SHOT Show, I wanted to talk into a camera, uh, to record things while I remember them. Mm -hmm. And people started watching that. So, okay, I'll have a YouTube channel. Uh, I, and then at some point I realized this is taking me a lot of time and right. uh, that it can be monetized. Totally. As I was trying to figure out how to monetize it, Guns and Ammo came, on, came knocking and said, do you want to do some writing for us? So I started writing for Guns and Ammo's uh, special interest publications and... Here we are. My hobby became a side business, and my wife can no longer tell me to stop doing it because it is a job, right? <laughs> it is a job. Yeah, I hear you. Well, what, what is your full business that you do? So for my day job, I run a small company that builds electro-optical test equipment, the types of things that I use to test and characterize. Mm. Once again, all the different uh, optical systems I've mentioned before, including rifle scopes, uh, among other things, and lenses and cameras. Uh, lots and lots of targeting systems that go on unmanned aerial vehicles, things like that. More or less, anything that has to do with optics or electro-optics, we do equipment to test and make sense of it. And uh, in an odd sort of way, so I've spent a part of my career developing image sensors and cameras and stuff like that for movies and also for the military. And probably an even larger, even when I was doing that, a very significant part of what I did was always test measurement and characterization. So the mm. specific niche where I've always worked was on trying to understand and quantify how well things work. Right. So when I started uh, doing reviews on rifle scopes, the mindset I had was extremely applicable because I've spent my entire professional career 
trying to figure out how things work, whether they do what they're supposed to, if not, what is wrong, and then verbalize it to non-technical people who can tell the ass from an elbow as far as anything technical goes. That is what <laughs> I did for a living. Right. Now, when I say can tell the ass from an elbow, I'm not trying to be derogatory, right? right? They do other things that I don't understand. Sure. I spent the entirety of my career sitting on this border between the technical and non-technical people because they don't understand each other and I translate. If that makes and sense. Your Russian background will lend you to being very forthright and some would say blunt in your approach to relaying information, which is refreshing. Um, that's more of a personality than Russian background. Really? Well, I think a lot of my uh, Russian friends have the same uh, personality traits as yourself. I think that says more about you than Russians, but yeah, sure. It, it very well may. It that's how you well. select your friends, right? You know, show me your friends, I'll show you who you are, right? Well, there you go. That's the spirit. Um, you also have a patent out on, uh, for image sensor combining high dynamic range yeah, techniques, uh, don't you? So I did some work with HDR, high dynamic range imagers in the past, but to be fair, so my patent in that case just combines a few existing techniques because we were trying to develop an image sensor that would eventually be applicable for automotive applications mm -hmm. or something called ADAS or automated driver assist systems. And um, that is a very different, it's an imaging application, but it's also a sensing application because you're trying to sense dangers. And mm. you need image sensors that are able to see both very dark and very bright uh, parts of the scene simultaneously, right? So that was an attempt to do that. To the best of my knowledge, uh, only one company is currently using my patents because I came up with it when I worked with somebody else, they have the rights. Gotcha, fair enough. So we were talking a little bit off air about, uh, how you relay your information through the darklordoptics.com and as well as YouTube. And if people were to check one out or the, over the other, where would you prefer to see people going? Well, this becomes, this becomes a little bit of a complicated question. YouTube is undoubtedly a bigger audience and I'm also on the rumble and all of those, right? So I try mm. to kind of cross pollinate. The way the modern uh, political environment goes, I am assuming that at some point, Facebook and YouTube will get rid of all the people like me. They start with the bigger channels first by demonetizing and all that. Then mm -hmm. they'll get to the small fish uh, like me. Mm -hmm. So darklordoptics.com is hosted by a platform called Locals. And that's sort of the focal point of everything that I do because uh, it's a First Amendment friendly thing. I do talk about politics. And when I do that on YouTube, they basically kill all my videos, mm. right? Because they disagree with my uh, uh, political stance. Mm. Unlike the people at YouTube, I used to live in the Soviet Union. So my political stance is extremely ambiguous. I don't, <laughs> to clarify, I don't want to live in the Soviet Union again. Right, uh, I hear you. Uh, so locals basically has everything that I do is converged on uh, uh, locals. Mm -hmm. But if you're trying to find me, there's only one Dark Lord of Optics, quite literally. So search for Dark Lord of Optics and all my different content pops up. How did you come up with that name, the Dark Lord of Optics? Somebody called me that, actually. Um, what was the guy's name? Wes, I think. We were having some sort of a profound uh, argument on the internet forum on Optics Talk. Right. And. Uh, As one does. Yeah. This, 
This is going to sound very immodest, but you guys will have to forgive me. I don't lose arguments about optics very much. Sure. For several reasons. Uh, not because I'm that good, because I don't get into arguments that I'm not going to win. Right. Right. Uh, because I kind of choose my battles. Mm -hmm. uh, Wes felt, uh, and as the argument gets protracted, my natural dark sense of humor and cynicism kind of flow to the surface. Right. So felt, Wes felt a little bit wounded and came up with this Dark Lord of Optics because I think it made him feel like shit. But he took it with a good sense of humor. And That's I good. thought it was hilarious and somebody else started calling me that. I said, oh yeah, I'll just adopt it. So I adopted it. <laughs> Do you remember what the argument was about? Yeah, Nikon rifle scopes. Um, Wes, uh, Mark and I were arguing. Mark, uh, he unfortunately... I'm still in touch with the guy, but he kind of deleted most of his online presence. Mm. Uh, loved Nikon rifle scopes. I did not like the low-light performance of those because similarly priced at the time Zeiss Conquest was better. Mm. And uh, Wes came up with the Dark Lord thing, and uh, the other guy says, you go descend into your abyss, you know, playing with words. I said, oh, yeah, abyss, absolutely. Great place to check low-light performance. Yeah. <laughs> And that's sort of how it steamrolled from there. We were all having an absolute blast with the, with the phrase. That's funny. So we were also talking about uh, any affiliations with any other optics companies out there. And you made it very clear that you aren't. In order for you to be able to do what you do, you're not directly affiliated or sponsored through that's any. Correct. Right. So I cannot be sponsored by an optics company because I have to remain unbiased. And mm. uh, the reason why people listen to what I have to say on the subject is that I am unbiased. I am quite friendly with a good number of companies and I ripped them a new one at one time or the other. And most of them take it like adults, think it's sure. constructive criticism and get better. Yeah. Uh, from a standpoint of uh, monetizing my presence on the web, I gave it a lot of time. So my YouTube channel is monetized, although there's almost nothing there since so many gun videos are demonetized. Mm -hmm. uh, I do have some affiliate accounts, but mostly with the larger companies. Like if I provide a link to, let's say, Brownells or EuroOptic, I will make some small sort of a commission. But I'm very particular. I mostly deal with people who sell a large variety of brands, right? They don't care which right. brand they recommend, and neither do I. The mm. primary revenue stream for me is actually subscription. On my darklordofoptics.com website, if you want to comment, there is a small paywall. And going forward, I am planning to rely more on that than on anything else because that way my loyalty is only to my audience. I like that. I don't owe anybody else anything. That's perfect. Okay. So you lived in the Soviet Union up to what age? 15. I came to... United States in 1991 and uh, finished high school in California. Okay. So most of your formidable years were spent over in the Soviet Union. Uh, yeah. The first major world event I remember was uh, Brezhnev, the general secretary of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, dying in 1981. Then I was too busy being an obnoxious kid. And then I remember Chernobyl hit in 1986. And that was sort of around the start of the perestroika. My formative years was essentially the collapse of Soviet Union. Mm. Very memorable. Yeah, I'd say so. There's some definite lessons to be learned by watching what happened. I don't there. know. I don't think we learned them very well. Not looking <laughs> no. at what's happening now. 
Yeah. Yeah. I'd have to say, uh, interesting without delving too far into the, uh, the p- political realm, but, um, oh, that's another podcast right there. I think so. Yeah. You know, the silver core podcast, I started this as a way to share positivity within the industry and to highlight people who have a passion for what they do and share that passion with others. And I have no problem talking about different political things that are going on. I always try to highlight it with like, what, what can we do moving forward or what can we do in a more positive light? Because I don't know too many problems that were solved just by sitting in a basement and complaining about them. But, That's um, it healthy attitude. The problem with talking about politics is it's, uh, it, uh, soon enough, all other conversations stop. Right. The only thing I can say that's short and fundamental is that stop trying to make the world better, make yourself better. I like that. I like that. All problems start with an, when you give up, on making yourself and people around you better and start solving problems you have no reach or impact or understanding of. And that probably translates to the vast majority of problems we have now. That's probably the most concise I've ever heard my, my fundamental thoughts on the issue made. I I don't think I could have said that in such a short snippet, but that is, that's very true. The more you want to change things that are happening outside, the more you start applying your value structure onto other people and putting your expectations as to how it should be solved without introspectively looking at how you can make things better yourself. Uh, There's that, but uh, there's a lot, there's a lot more to it. Um, We have a drive to feel good about ourselves. Mm -hmm. And then uh, by that same extension, it's much easier to feel good about yourself if there is no way to evaluate whether you did anything good or not. And if you're protesting global warming, poverty among penguins in Antarctica or something like that, you feel good by protesting, but there is no actionable way to measure if you made a difference. So you get mm-hmm. to feel good without producing any results. Mm-hmm. The closer to you are the things you're looking to change, improve, whatever use the word the verb that agrees with you, the more actionable things are and the more likely you are to be disappointed with your efforts. Yeah. Okay. That's a good point. But we should be doing things that we can see, feel, and touch and be ready to be disappointed because it'll make you a better man. I like that. Well, let's talk a little bit about optics. Let's talk about from a very broad general sense, cause I know we're going to delve into this from a more, uh, a technical aspect of things in a, uh, future chat, but what are some of the more common misconceptions in optics that oh. you hear, you find, and that's, that's a massive open question. Yeah. Let's see. So there are, a few years ago, I started writing two books, one on politics, one on this, rifle scopes. Mm. And I've been kind of, I decided that instead of publishing them, I'm going to convert them to a bunch of essays. And that's one of the things that goes out on my website uh, bit by bit. I just started doing that. The biggest, single biggest, most fundamental problem 
is that, and this is driven by rifle scope marketing, really, all binoculars, whatever else, mm. is that we spent too much time worrying what's inside that thing. What kind of lens it has, what kind of coating it has, are what kind of metal it has, what kind of what, and these are things that are easy to talk about, but it's very hard to ascertain whether any of that makes any real practical difference. If you really want one concise thing, uh, think of a rifle scope or a binocular or a spotting scope as a black box. Something is going in, something is going out. Mm. How in it gets converted to out should not matter to you as long as what comes out is good enough. Mm. Uh, so think, uh, and this is, uh, once again, this, my background is on making sense of how do you test a rifle scope? You take a rifle scope, you put a camera behind it, you project some reasonable image at it, that's, you know exactly what you're projecting. You mm -hmm. take a camera, hopefully the camera is very high quality so that it's not corrupting the image, and you look at the image that comes out. The image that comes out is what matters. Mm -hmm. What the rifle scope does, there's a bunch of lenses in there and all that, how exactly that image gets massaged makes no difference. Well, let me rephrase it. It makes a difference, makes no difference to you. The details okay. of what happens right there are intellectually interesting. They're interesting from a technical standpoint. I can't explain most of them to you in a way that you will truly understand. Now, you think you understand that you don't. Mm. They're not that difficult, but they're really weird. Optics is a very strange science because you can't really touch and feel it. Right? Mechanical engineers go into optics. It takes them a couple of years to change their mindset. Mm. Because you can, you, your intuition does not work in optics if you're a mechanical guy right. without some background. But we all understand what an image is because we all, most of us, everybody who uses a rifle scope has eyes and can see. Let's call sure. that, right? Sure. And we all understand what an image is, right? Does this rifle scope hold zero? Is the image pleasing? Mm -hmm. I deal with the binoculars. Is the image pleasing? Does it give me a headache? You have to think about it in terms of output, not in terms of what's inside the box. Does that make sense? It totally makes sense. Yeah. So it, it would be kind of like getting glasses, right? Or a prescription for one person. I don't wear glasses. I put them on and they're not going to work for me. So what could be pleasing to my eyes or pleasing to somebody else's eyes could be two very different things. It's rather subjective. Will be so, yeah, there will be some differences, right? Uh, but, you know, nice rifle scopes will be nice for nearly everyone. They are designed for a broad range of human eye conditions and the eyepiece can adjust for it. But when you start trying to figure out what exact kind of lens material was used inside, and I see this all the time, people on forums go, read up something on shot websites. Oh yeah, this rifle scope is amazing because it used this type of glass and this type of glass mm. and this type of glass. Absolute bullshit. All they, marketing? You can barely spell the word glass, not just the type. And it makes, <laughs> and the only thing they know about it because somebody told them, oh yeah, when you use this glass, it's amazing. Yeah, it's nonsense. It's amazing right. when the image that comes out of it is good. That's when it's amazing. If it right. stays zeroed, the reticle doesn't move under recoil, and the image is good enough for you to see really well without eye fatigue, then it's amazing. If somebody comes up and is able to do this in a rifle scope with every lens is made out of cheap plastic and the image looks good, you should buy that one. It's going to be cheaper and the image is, and the image is good. Mm. Reticles moving. Do you find that happening too often in most modern rifle scopes? I know some older ones that I've worked with, I see reticle moving, but 
Most uh, modern ones seem to be made sometimes, yeah. pretty good. Depends on the price. The nice scopes okay. are very robust. Mm-hmm. Uh, some inexpensive scopes, not so much. But then there's also always uh, sample-to-sample variation. There's uh, There are quality control issues. Mm. And um, you will find some stuff that shifts around. You will also find things that uh, break in. I'll give you an example of... Uh, a Vortex Strike Eagle 5 to 25 by 56. It's about 700 bucks, so it's not a cheap mm. scope, but not a very expensive one by modern standards. Um, it's a nice scope, all mm-hmm. overall. But you know, whenever you think that Vortex, uh, a lot of people have accused me of uh, uh, getting uh, pre-selected samples from manufacturers, right? Mm. That are tested to be good. Yeah, not always. And also, whenever I recommend a the scope, then I get my hands on a few more that were bought through retail channels and double check. But anyhow, so Vortex sends me this strike eagle. I start doing a tracking test and I'm adjusting vertical tracking. And when mm. I'm two mils up, the reticle moves left. I go three mm. mils up and it comes back on an original adjustment line, right? Oh, interesting. And uh, that's where it helps. So I know how it's built. There is a pressure pad that sits in a rector tube. There must have been no uniformity there. So I sit in front of the computer and spend 10 minutes twisting turrets, uh, turrets and it breaks in. And this mm. deviation goes away. But the reticle did move. And if you did not spend the time figuring out what it actually does, and you decide to go through the competition with it, when adjusting two mils, your reticle would jump left half a mil. That's interesting. So I, I've never actually, so I, I'll do a scope break-in, which for me really is just me tur- turning the, the turrets on the thing, counting how far it goes and mm-hmm. checking it out. That's about all I do when I break in a scope. I don't know, is there much more that really goes into that process? Yeah, you have to you have to look where the point, uh, what happens to the point of uh, aim and point of impact when you do this. Right. So, right. okay. I, I, I took that as the logical step within the, the, the twisting and, and turning up and down. So I uh, do this thing, um, uh, that is sort of the first thing I do with a lot of scopes, uh, because it gives me a good idea of, uh, uh, if I'm going to, if there are any obvious problems, right? There are subtle problems, but are there any obvious problems? Mm. Um, I zero it, right? I get it sighted in. And get some ammo, and I always could use some uh, bench practice anyway. I do this from bench or prone. Shoot around, adjust one mil up, shoot another round, one mil up, shoot another round, until I essentially run out of paper. Every one mil, every two mils. Mm -hmm. I get to the top, then I adjust down one mil, and every time I make one shot, I go up and down a few times. Mm -hmm. So every one mil radian, I end up with a three or five or whatever amount of ammo I had, shot groups. Mm -hmm. If I did my part, and this is, once again, this is also my shooting practice, if I did my part, I should have roughly the same size group lined up vertically one mil apart. Mm. Okay, what this does, um, sometimes adjustments have hysteresis, meaning adjustment up is not the same as adjustment down. Older scopes did this a lot. You adjust, then you shoot, and it settles a little bit, it moves. Right. New scopes don't do this as much, but I do run into this. Uh, I do run into this occasionally. Right, so mm. it tells me what happens when you adjust up, tells me what happens when you adjust down, tells me if there is any lateral wandering, and that does happen. Mm. Uh, not just with vortex strike eagle, I've seen this with a few scopes here and there. Um, mm. It kind of gives me an idea of what I'm dealing with. If, if the scope passes this with flying colors, I'm unlikely to run into mechanical issues. Okay. 
right? So that's sort of the first thing that I do because it gives me a lot of different things and it directly translates into the way I shoot uh, when I normally shoot, almost never dial for wind. Mm -hmm. I hold for wind, I dial elevation. So I work out the elevation turret quite thoroughly. The windage turret, nah, I really don't care. I mean, okay. I check it because other people want me to, but for the way I shoot, other than zeroing, I never touch the windage turret. Interesting. Right. Not even for making compensation for uh, spin at, dif at distance? No. Bullet drift? I use reticle holes. Okay. So I prefer, to, well, okay, assuming a reticle I'm using has reticle holes for it, but yes. <laughs> Well, what, what's the preferred, uh, and everyone's got opinions on this, right? They're, what they like as their preferred uh, reticle that they're going to be used. Some people just love the full-on grid or a Christmas mm -hmm. tree, or some people want something that's really fine. What do you like? What do you typically like to see? Well, so I'm very fortunate in the sense that I occasionally design reticles for people. So I get to use the reticles that I like because I designed them. Awesome. Um, a good example of the type of reticle I like... And so in every new design I do is slightly different. They all kind of carry some of the same themes, but then I look at the market response, use it, and change something. Mm. Uh, a couple of years ago, I designed a reticle for a company called March uh, Scopes. It's mm -hmm. a nice high-end Japanese company. The mm -hmm. reticle is called FMLTR1. Okay. Uh, so it's a tree-type reticle. Uh, it has a slightly more prominent primary aiming point, you know, kind of the, what's it actually in the center. Mm -hmm. Then a lot of people like, I don't like ultra small dots. I think they disappeared a little bit too easily against complex backgrounds. Mm -hmm. It does have a tree, but I size that tree so that when you're below 10, 11 power, it essentially disappears and it looks like a much simpler reticle. Interesting. So I made the tree fairly thin, so it's quite unobtrusive. The, I like tree reticles. I like some abbreviated grid reticles. Um, I don't like, so the good essential tree radicals are the Horus radicals. Right. They're basically a mosquito net designer's wet dream and mostly <laughs> useless. Um, there's, I've, I've done videos on this. If you want, we could, that's a separate conversation. There is a yeah. ton of things that are wrong with them. The guy who convinced the U.S. military to use them is a world-class snake oil salesman. Mm. And uh, most Horus designs, in my opinion... Take a good idea and then extend it to the point where it becomes a bad idea. Interesting. If you well, want a good grid type radical, Schmidt and Bender's GR2 ID is a good example. Okay. They did some very clever things with that. Once again, radical, detailed radical discussion is a whole video. But I basically like somewhat compact three trio grid type radicals where on lower magnifications, the trio of the grid essentially fade out and you rather than distract you. Got it. And would that be your biggest uh, negative point that you see about a Horus style reticle is just that it's just too distracting? Uh, oh, no, God, no. That's just the beginning. Um, uh, several, uh, several, if you want to go there now. Sure. Uh, I want to hear. So when you design a reticle, what are you looking to achieve? What are you trying to get? What kind of functionality are you looking to build? And the catch is you have to build in all the functionality that you need and none of the functionality that you don't. Mm -hmm. And once again, it's uh, I like these simple, somewhat fundamental phrases in case you didn't notice, mm -hmm. right? Uh, try to define as a fundamental principle in a short way. And this is the most 
fundamental thing you can say about radicals. Mm -hmm. In your long range shooting, how many times have you used the radical to hold 30 milli radian holdover? I haven't. So why do so many Horus radicals extend that grid all the way down to on the low magnification? It just like it looks like mosquito net, 30, 40 milli radian down. That's a good point. Probably from a marketing standpoint, sounds oh, from, good. Oh, it markets great. All the yeah. Monday night quarterbacks and mole ninjas look at us. Oh yeah, I can shoot a <laughs> testicle off of a off, off of a mask ox that's in Alaska while I'm in Oregon. You know, <laughs> it's does not need to be there, and it is distracting. On top of it, since they all put in normal rifle scopes, and virtually all rifle scopes have some sort of distortion as you start going away from the center, and your right. parallax setting for the edges and the center is different. We all dial it in for the center. You right. do not want to use the radical holes that would require different parallax compensation. That's a good you point. You do not want to be aiming that far away from the center. Right. In practical terms, 10 to 50 milliradian for most scopes. Mm -hmm. It varies from scope to scope. And when you move your, on lower magnification, when the exit people is bigger, when you move your eye behind the scope, you will see all the edges kind of swim and distort, like almost like a um, fishbowl effect, right? Right. Notice that uh, that stuff is, th that effect is not particularly distracting unless San Nincompoop decided to extend his reticle all the way to the edges and now the lines of the reticle are supposed to be straight, all look like a wavy crap. Right. And you will see nothing else, you will just be looking at that. Right. Okay, that is distracting. Yeah. When you're taking a quick glance at a reticle, there has to be a center primary aiming point and your eye has to be drawn to that. When you look through a Horus reticle, H59, Tremor 3, or God forbid, Tremor 5, uh, <laughs> when you glance at it, where's the primary aiming point? Well, it's somewhere in there. Right. Right, where? When mm -hmm. you haven't slept for 36 hours, can you pick it out in one glance? Mm. You can't. No, it's it's a little bit of searching. Okay, correct. So you want a low magnification. So when you are using, and then on top of it, right? So if you're shooting far away and it requires 20 milliradian of holdover or whatever else, okay, you're probably going to be on somewhat high magnification, except with the, if you're trying to do 20 milliradian with the radical, you have to dial back on magnification because otherwise right. you're going to see 20 milliradian of holdover. Right. So... Why is it there? And if you're trying to keep magnification comparatively high, so you just see the 20 milliradian holdover point, you're aiming with the edge of the field of view. Mm -hmm. How are you going to spot something if you missed? And I guarantee if you are doing 20 milliradian of holdover, there's a really good chance you're going to miss mm -hmm. and have to correct. Mm -hmm. You can see that in the edge of your rifle scope. No, so you have to drop magnification even further. Right. Right. Now everything is wavy and distorted, and you don't see your target as well because you're aiming with the wrong part of the image. Scope manufacturers must love you. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so you brought up a term which uh, people who've used rifle scopes will understand. Some people who might be getting into it might not, but you talk about parallax. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, on the side of some scopes, you're going to have a parallax adjustment and some people will call that their focus knob. <laughs> they say, Hey, I just bring it into focus. And some people say, no, 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 it's a, uh, it's a parallax thing. 
I've heard some say you have to gently move your head back and forth and watch that reticle to see where it's mm-hmm. moving and adjust that parallax knob until the reticle deviates the least amount, which is difficult without inducing other movement on the, um, on the scope. And some people say, if it's in focus, you're good. Uh, mm-hmm. what, what are your thoughts about parallax? Uh, yes. And all of the above. Uh, okay. depends on what you're looking to do, depending on how big of the target you're shooting. Okay. Uh, Side focus or parallax knob is indeed a focus knob. Uh, okay. Rifle scope has three optical systems in it. Objective, erector, and eyepiece. Right. There are two focal planes, front focal plane and second focal plane. Mm-hmm. For most long-range precision scopes these days, uh, front focal plane clearly dominates. Uh, so let's say you have your reticle in the front focal plane. It's uh, fixed to the front of your erector tube, mm-hmm. and it's fixed in uh, place. It means it goes up and down when you adjust with the elevation, but front back, it's fixed in place. Mm-hmm. The way optics work, the objective of the rifle scope is kind of like a camera lens, right? When you're looking at an object, let's say 100 yards away, the objective creates an image at a particular spot behind it. Mm-hmm. You want that spot to be where the reticle is so that the right. image created by the objective lens is superimposed on the reticle. Okay? Mm-hmm. So you adjust your side focus knob, and what it does, it moves the image that's generated by the objective lens front and back a little bit, for mm-hmm. and aft movement. Okay. Now you've switched and you're looking at something that is 500 yards away. And when you look at something that's further away, the, if you did not adjust your side focus knob or whichever focusing method you have, mm-hmm. the image moved forward a little bit. It's no longer superimposed with the reticle. And now when you move your head, the reticle superimposed on the image. Uh, will move. Mm-hmm. Okay, so focus and parallax adjustment are functionally the same thing. So then you go to your side focus knob and adjust that very slightly, and it physically moves the location of the image and superimposes on the uh, superimposes that image on the reticle again. Mm. Okay. You with me? hundred mm, percent. Excellent. All of that works if you adjusted the eyepiece correctly. Right. Okay. So the Side focus essentially adjusts the objective lens of the rifle scope to superimpose the image on the reticle. Mm-hmm. While the eyepiece focus adjusts everything that's uh, behind, uh, everything is behind the reticle, sort of, so mm-hmm. that your eye is looking at the spot where the reticle is in focus. Right. Okay. The two have to, you have to set up your eyepiece correctly, and there is uh, there are a couple of methods to do that. Mm-hmm. If your eyepiece is set up correctly, from the standpoint of the side focus turret, the sharpest image was all, will also be the one that's superimposed in the reticle and you know, will give you minimal parallax. I love it. So okay. if people talk about a parallax-free scope, there's no such thing. Would there be? Uh, or I guess if it's at a set distance, you could say everything at this distance would be yeah. parallax So you can say that. Um, some scopes have very high... Uh, depth of field. Okay. Right. The greatest depth of field of any conventional rifle scope I know of, you as a Canadian should be proud. Uh, what the hell is that thing? What did I do with that? Tangent theta. I, I had a couple of them here just a moment ago. Ah, uh, good old tangent theta. Uh, did I like misplace a five thousand dollar score? <laughs> oh, here it is. <laughs> 
So here's a tangent theta, 5 to 25 by 56. This has the greatest depth of field of them all. Interestingly, uh, interestingly, when okay. the scope has very high depth of field, it's actually harder to figure out where that focus is perfect. But on the other mm. hand, your parallax error was, is not going to be very large the way it's uh, the way this thing is designed. Okay. If you're shooting bench rest, you need it to be perfectly dialed out. Mm -hmm. If you're shooting objects of finite size, let's say metal plates. That's mm. not what we're talking about, but let's say metal plates. Uh, your error is likely to be within range. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, for example, with, with all of my tangent theaters that I use, and I use a lot of different scopes. I mean, you see a few in front and behind me. I mean, I'm doing a comparison right now on some fancy 50 millimeter scopes. Ugh. Holy that's, crow. There's a couple bucks, eh? Uh, yeah, that's about 20 grand on a tripod. Yeah. Don't drop that. That's okay. Only one of them is mine. <laughs> uh, uh, hold on. There we go. Yeah. For the listeners, you can't see this. Uh, Ilya just held up a bar with, what was it? Was there seven on there? Six rifle scopes. Uh, Tangent Theta, US Optics, Steiner, Schmidt & Bender, March. And Didal. This is a really interesting Russian rifle scope. Yeah. Zeiss is supposed to be coming shortly. What about ZCO? Do you deal with that much? Uh, yeah. Uh, I just sent one back. Nice scopes. Yeah. But anyhow, so to get back to the original uh, depth of field conversation. Yeah. With tangent scopes, if I'm shooting further out, I essentially just uh, uh, set the parallax in a three to 400 yard range. I never have to mess with it. Hmm. So the parallax is never perfectly dialed out, but it's good enough where I can hit, hit uh, small things and I can transition between targets quite quickly. One mm. of the strengths, let's say, tangent theaters. Mm. And quite a few, like Z-Comp is good, and, uh, Minox, a few others. But tangent is the best at that. Interesting. Like by a measurable amount or are we just talking about? Yeah. I can see it, I can measure it. And this depth of field has other advantages for shooting in strange air and stuff like that. Mm. So strange air, you mean just like more particles float in the air? Or? Uh, when it, So I have more experience shooting when it's hot and not super humid because okay. I live in California and now I live in New Mexico. Yeah. Um, once on the same picture, I had a bunch of fancy 56 millimeter scopes. I started looking at them with a PRS buddy of mine. And so we're looking at them and they look good in closer distances. Closer distance tangent theaters doesn't have the highest resolution. Contrast color, very good. Um, then we start looking further out and it, it's starting warming up and Mirage starts popping up at six, seven, eight hundred yards and mm -hmm. looking at the target through that Mirage tangent, uh, edged out other scopes and the difference became obvious and that's depth of field and, 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 uh, um, ability to render color. Color mm. is very important. So just because so, of how we perceive images. But that's going to be pretty subjective too, won't it? Yes and no. Okay. Uh, how we see color is a little bit uh, subjective, but we all see color and uh, color is a huge component of how we understand images, right? Um, if you have an image that's super sharp, but the colors are a little bit bland, mm -hmm. it is super sharp objectively, I can measure it, but in terms of how sharp it looks to your eye, it will frequently lose look, especially under difficult lighting conditions, less sharp and ultimately low resolution image where the colors pop more. Mm. 
right? Because of how we perceive. So something that's not well covered in the industry is that how we see things is more about the brain than the eye. As far as, uh, as, far as the camera goes, the eye is a very primitive camera. Mm -hmm. What is remarkable is how well our brain makes sense of those images. All right? mm -hmm. And we have no idea how it does it. We have no means to replicate it. Within the machine vision world, we sort of give up on trying to understand how human brain does this. Mm -hmm. And we've gone off on a different tangent trying to make you know, automated machine vision cameras better. But the way we are doing this is clearly different than the way our brain does it. We have no idea how the brain gets an image so remarkable out of such a primitive camera as a human eye. Right. right. A big part we know of how the brain processes this is color information. One okay. of the big reasons you, you, use your, you lose your visual acuity as the light drops is that all of a sudden you see colors a lot less. Mm -hmm. And a rifle scope that has good enough contrast to maintain some semblance of color vision into lower light levels will look markedly better than... Objective is sharper imaging mm. optic uh, that does not pertain the ability to see color into as late uh, of uh, as late of a light uh, environment as low of a light environment. Right. Okay. Makes sense. It totally hundred percent. Absolutely excellent. Good idea. So, <laughs> uh, so when you talk about the eyepiece being mm -hmm. set up and, and the parallax being dependent on the eyepiece being properly set up, and mm -hmm. we're talking, I guess we're adjusting the diopter on your mm -hmm. scope. Correct. Uh, and there's a few ways to do it. How often do you find people are incorrectly adjusting that diopter? Oh, how much of your audience do you want to lose? <laughs> Maybe we save that for the, um, uh, for the next podcast. We get a little bit more technical. <laughs> no, uh, nine out of 10, maybe more. Really? I actually did a couple of videos on YouTube on how to focus, uh, how to focus rifle scope eyepieces. And it's different for front focal pin versus second focal pin scopes. Mm. And it's different for conventional rifle scopes versus low power variables. Mm. It's not markedly different, but you're trying to achieve a slightly different effect and uh, there are different priorities. But that is a fairly lengthy conversation. Well, tell you what, if you want to get those links over to me, I'll put them in the description so people can just go straight over to your YouTube page. Uh, I will, uh, dig them up. I need to redo those videos. They're fairly old, but you know, it's okay. just me sketching things in front of the whiteboard. Uh, Fair but, enough. uh, they should be legible enough. Well, uh, so light gathering. So there's, there's a lot of people who talk about the whole light gathering myth. Yeah. Is this something? We got what, a maximum of eight millimeters for the human eye to be able to actually accept yeah, light? That's, it, non that's nonsense. Yeah? Yep. Tell me about this. <sighs> okay. So among the vast field of marketable bullshit out in the optics industry, that's one of them. Mm. Uh, everybody goes, all right, your eye can only dilate to seven millimeters. Mm. And because of that, uh, exit pupil that's more than seven millimeters doesn't do anything for you. That's nonsense. First of all, um, some people I can dilate to 12 millimeters if they're young and have large eyes. Some cannot dilate much. As you get older, your eye dilation ability of your eye to dilate goes down. That's why you lose the ability to see at night. Mm -hmm. 
uh, your ability of uh, your I, uh, of your eye people to contract also goes down. That's why you can't see things up close. I'm mm -hmm. hold you are, Travis. Forty uh, four as of so we're almost right exactly same age. I'm forty five. Okay. So you're beginning to see some of those wonderful effects. Um, mm -hmm. I started a couple of years ago. <sighs> almost cried my eyes out. <laughs> but um, uh, we don't know. Basically, we don't know. You can kind of measure how far your eye pupil dilates, but what kind of light conditions and dilates under how dark it needs to get. And then your eyes are wonderfully dark adapted, and you look to your rifoscope, there's, and the image looks a little brighter, and there's something bright in it that's far away, and immediately your uh, eye pupil contracts again. It changes all the time. Mm-hmm. But the way your eye works, it doesn't like to be fixed in one spot. Mm -hmm. uh, so if you have a large active people, your eye, if it's forced to be fixed in one spot, it gets tired really fast. It likes to move around. And mm -hmm. as it moves around, it essentially, think of it as almost like snaps images and mm -hmm. reconstruction. It's one of the things that helps your uh, brain to see much better. So larger okay. exit pupil can be helpful. But in the rifle scope, exit pupil is, uh, a large exit pupil means lower magnification. Magnification also helps you see. Right, so uh, there is a balance, and it's going to be different for different situations and uh, different environments. Mm. Okay. Uh, light gathering by itself is a god awful term uh, because your rifle scope does not go start walking out in the meadows and gathering light. Uh, <laughs> there is an objective lens diameter, and everything that falls on that objective lens from whatever field of view you are dealing with which mm -hmm. depends on magnification, uh, enters into the rifle scope, some of it lost due to reflection, different surfaces, scattering, a little bit of absorption, stuff like that, mm -hmm. and most of it makes it out of the eyepiece. Okay. So it doesn't gather anything, but you do have a larger collecting aperture than your unaided eye, right? So if... Uh, now this, since I have this tangent theta here, 56 millimeter objective, right? Mm -hmm. If you have it sitting, let's say, on, I don't know, uh, for, for the ease, let's say, I've got it sitting on 23 power, right? Mm -hmm. That means I have 2 millimeter exit pupil, right? Yep. So all of the light that got into that rifle scope uh, got, uh, barring some transmission losses uh, mm -hmm. through, the, through the scope, got to your eye. Mm -hmm. But here's a catch, right? So your objective lens diameter for most of the magnification is stays the same. But on lower magnifications, there is more light. Why? It's collecting it from a wider angle. Your field of view is right. wider on lower magnifications. Yep. Right? So it will look a little bit brighter. But no matter how you slice it, it's going to give you more light and more information than your unaided eye. Mm. So if we were to... Well, let's, how about the eye box? So I, I remember there's a Hensholt I was using one time and mm -hmm. had a really large eye box on there, which I thought was desirable. I like that. It was uh, easy to get clear glass from a, from a large distance. Mm -hmm. Is there a drawback to having a large eye box other than perhaps the cost of making these sort of things? Yeah. Every time somebody says eye box, I imagine this wooden box full of glass I know. eyes. <laughs> I hate that term, but I don't have a better one. I, uh, I often say eye relief flexibility, but I think I'm giving up and beginning to use eye box. Eye relief flexibility. It ain't a box. Um, there is a certain re uh, range of uh, positions for your eye that uh, the eyepiece can tolerate. 
Okay. And it's not shaped like a box. Right. It's more conical, right? Uh, it's more like an ellipsoid, actually. Okay. Um, but um, nice designed eyepiece will give you better eye box, right? So there are trade-offs, right? Oh, uh, everything in optics is a compromise. For example, you mentioned the scope, a ZCO, Zero Compromise Optics, really nice, very, very high-end of scopes that have done a very good job marketing themselves. Mm. And the company has done a very good job marketing them. But the scopes market themselves. Why? They are designed so they're extremely forgiving to get behind, and all of the user controls are really well done, smooth, calibrated, no sharp edges, just a great user experience. Objectively, if you look at it, the image is very, very good, but let's say tangent is optically a better scope. In mm. my opinion. So the guys, I'm friendly with the guys at Zcomp. Every time I say that, I think they're about to have an aneurysm, but so far nobody died. They're yeah. good people. I like them. They don't yeah. like it when I say that. But to mm. their great credit, they still talk to me, right? Mm -hmm. Just speaks well of them. There are companies who no longer do. Mm -hmm. uh, to get that super forgiving eyepiece, uh, uh, box, they ended up giving up a little bit of field of view. Mm. The image looks huge because of how the eyepiece is designed. Field of view is, is uh, about mid-pack for fancy mm. scopes, for example, right? Interesting. That's one of the compromises. You do not have to make that compromise too much. I just started looking at the latest Vortex Razor uh, Gen 3, 6 to 36 uh, by 56. Mm -hmm. It has an extremely forgiving eye box and it has rather a wide field of view. So. They change something in design, right? Every time they come up with a new design, sure. the compromise gets less restrictive, right? Mm -hmm. um, really, really nice scope, by the way. Uh, amazingly nice, given what it costs. Mm. Uh, significantly better than I expected. I'm friendly with a bunch of people at Vortex. They told me it's going to be very nice. I told them they're full of shit. I'm looking at it. Those bastards were right. Ah. <laughs> uh, it is uh, unusually nice for what it costs. I, they won't be able to keep it in stock for a couple of years at least. Mm. But anyhow, but I digress. So that's the there are compromises uh, to the eye box. Um, the original rifle scope that ha was the most forgiving of eye position was indeed the handsold. Uh, one of my favorite designs overall is still the three to twelve by fifty six handsold. I thought it was a wonderful scope. Yeah. Um, but um, it's also easier to do when you have lower magnification, larger objective. Yeah, so good point. And lower uh, erector ratios, meaning the ratio between uh, high and low magnification. So all of mm -hmm. those help. Mm -hmm. But a lot of it is just good design. And um, technologies move forward, right? So, I mean, we'll mm -hmm. go on. I was going to just mention with the same handsold, right? So the handsold doesn't care about civilian market. And it's... They develop a scope for the military, and while they're then they'll sell it to civilians. Mm -hmm. Their latest and greatest, not that new anymore, is a three and a half to twenty-six by fifty-six, right? And um, when it first came out, it was seven thousand dollars, and everybody was running around saying how wonderful it is. Uh, you know, that's that's either people who haven't seen it or people who justified just shelling out seven grand, right? It was built for a particular purpose. They had to make it very short. Um, the elevation turret has to have a lot of adjustment. Image quality is not that great, comparatively mm. speaking. Mm -hmm. It's not as easy to get behind as the older, simpler handholds. 
-hmm. and the turret is unadulterated crap because the military forced them to stick what 18 mil radian at the comparatively small diameter turret so the clicks are not that distinct mm. it's well built it's robust it's good for the constraints they put on it but if you are not operating with the same constraints the military wanted it very short so they put a clip on in front of it and all that sort of stuff that's german military mm -hmm. if you're not operating with those constraints you just wasted seven grand and you'll go buy something right. else for less money right right but here's a confirmation bias for you a few people who bought them they went around saying how wonderful how amazing these things are because if you just spent seven grand what else are you going to say you're not going to turn around and say this piece of garbage unless yeah. you got lots of money and to blow. And it's not a piece of garbage. No. It's, if you're operating within the constraints that were in that large tender that it was designed for, it is a very impressive effort. Mm -hmm. It's not that great of a scope for the rest of us. Well, with constant advancements in optics mm -hmm. and scopes, I mean, everyone looks like they're, a lot of it's marketing from my perspective and from talking to you now. Mm -hmm. uh, integrating electronics within the scope, whether that be illuminated reticles or like, uh, uh, laser range finders or, uh, levels, digital levels to tell you mm -hmm. if you're level or not. Is there anything that is being currently marketed that you think is like, what a gimmick? And is there anything that's kind of really getting you excited that, uh, the optics world is, is moving towards? Uh, there are a lot of things that are interesting and within those are gimmicks, um, I've been looking a lot at thermals and clip-ons and stuff like that. That's sort of my mm. field of expertise, right? So I've spent a lot more time with thermal uh, imagers than everything, anything else. Okay. Some of them are still orbiting the Earth and looking at your license plate. <laughs> uh, a lot of the gimmickry is in the marketing, I have to say. A lot of the gimmickry is in when you start going to electronics, you have this tendency to put everything and the kitchen sink into it. It's a Wi-Fi server, there are 28 different versions of Bluetooth. Uh, you mm. can, you know, play porn from your cell phone as you're looking through the scope. I don't know what else they do, right? Uh, all that crap just drains the battery, really. Right. Uh, but a lot of it is useful innovation, and the market will eventually kind of filter through all the nonsense, mm. I think. Okay. Illuminated radicals are there to stay. The most exciting thing for me is the active radical stuff. That's okay. going to make a huge difference. Uh, Vortex just, I think, won a $2.8 billion contract for the next uh, NGSW rifle scope. Okay. Uh, look that up. Uh, it's a rifle scope with integrated laser range finder, a normal reticle, and an active projected reticle. So that, I think, is all the information that's publicly available, so I can say more. All this electro-optical integration makes a ton of sense when you can overlay some sort of projected reticle features that reflect the ballistic solution. Mm. Okay. When you can combine a normal fixed reticle to use normal conventional shooting with a active, actively controlled projected reticle, that's when you have something special. Because then everything else, all your clip-ons, all of those sorts of other things can easily uh, fit on there, right? Right now, for example, I'll give you an example. Uh, you have, let's say you're hawk hunting at night, mm. right? You have your thermal clip-on in front of the rifle scope. You can only look uh, through the clip-on, mm -hmm. right? If you have your laser range finder built into the rifle scope, normally like actually, like a lot of them are, now it mm -hmm. no longer works because it doesn't see through the clip-on, right? Right. Okay. So, well, this new solution has an offset 
is a rangefinder that can see around the clip on whatever else and it can project a ballistic solution in the reticle. What mm. if you extended it? Uh, what if you extended it further? You could uh, use the next generation of this active radical technology to project an image, and, or just overlay an image on there. Now your clip one doesn't have to be in front of the rifle skull; can be on the side of the handguard, uh, bore sighted, so they're all pointing in the same direction. And you yeah. can use a normal scope. And at some point, with your hand on the handguard, you press a button, and you just got your thermal image overlaid. Very cool. Uh, are you familiar with the Steiner CQT? Uh, I, I, I've not used one, no, but I've, I'm somewhat familiar. So I, so I've played with it for quite a long time, but then I finally remembered that I have it and asked me to send it back. I'm a little sore <laughs> about that. Uh, it's basically a combination of a normal reflex, uh, sight with a projected thermal. Mm -hmm. When you look, uh, use a thermal optic, uh, you lose, uh, situational awareness because the image looks very different when you're looking through this thing. Mm -hmm. CQT solves the situational awareness problem. If you're going to be do, using a fused optic for self-defense purposes, that's the one. It's expensive, mm. like 10 grand, it's expensive. Mm. But it's basically a reflex sight that also gives you thermal. You can't hide right. from that stupid thing, and you have not lost any of your situational awareness. You can use a magnifier with it, you can use a flashlight, it'll work fine. You see it all, and you still have thermal. Interesting. Okay, it's just, uh, you know... A uh, really, really impressive effort, and you know it's going to come down on prices. They sure. make more of them and all that. So these are the kind of things uh, that excite me, that I find interesting. And most of them are in, in a fusion of uh, traditional optics with electro optics. Mm. So, if you were based on like current market, and you're telling somebody entry level, let's say, and I don't know price range, can you keep it? What would you consider? a good, rather than constraining you by the amount of money that somebody's going to be spending, uh, what would you recommend somebody be considering when purchasing their first optic and we'll break it into, let's say for a hunting optic and maybe something that's going to be used for maybe PRS style shooting. Uh, so two different categories. So conventional big game hunting. Right. Yes. Are they ever going to do PRS or other things? Is it the same person? Is it just a guy who's going to take out his rifle and go try to uh, shoot a deer twice a year? Okay. Well, originally I was thinking like, you know, just the guy shooting, just a hunting and a separate one, but you know, you raise a good point. A lot of people will want an all in one thing that they can do their target shooting and their hunting with. Uh, that's actually not where I was getting. Um, okay. For normal uh, shooting at point blank distances or where you don't have to do holdovers and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Most conventional hunting scopes will work fine. Mm -hmm. But if this is a guy who will spend most of his time shooting PRS through the year, then we'll go hunt in uh, November. Mm -hmm. I would actually recommend some sort of front focal plane optic in both cases. Okay. So that, he, because he will not resist the temptation, ask me how I know, uh, will not resist the temptation to use his hunting rifles to shoot at obscene distances occasionally. Mm -hmm. It happens. Right. So the single choice for all of the above is the Vortex Razor HDLHT 4.5 to 22 by 50. It's a front focal plane scope. It's under 22 ounces. Mm. And I have a rifle called the Fix uh, that I use for hunting and precision and everything. Uh, and the scope can do all of that. Mm. Right. Because it's fairly lightweight. Most precision oriented scopes are, are, are heavy. But that's right. an example of what's, what's called a crossover design. Mm -hmm. okay. Uh. A rifle scope that's been around for a long time, 
I don't think it's easily available in Canada, though. You may want to consider moving. Uh, it's an <laughs> SWFA 3 to 9 by 42. It's a front focal pen scope made in Japan. Uh, simple, robust, uh, really, really well made. Not super heavy. Simple, like, mill scale reticle. Mm -hmm. You can use that scope to shoot far away or just use it as a regular hunting scope. And it has a very good reputation for being robust, about 600 bucks. That's a good price point. Uh, it doesn't do anything exotic. It doesn't have a limited reticle. It doesn't uh, sh shine your shoes. It doesn't tie your shoelaces. It's mm -hmm. a, but it's a simple and robust thing. If you're on a budget for hunting scope, basically don't go super exotic. Mm -hmm. The Vortex Razor HDLHT that I was talking about is in the $1,500 range. Nice mm -hmm. scope. If uh, I were just setting up a basic hunting uh, rifle, I, there are two options I like the most, although there's no shortage of options. Mm -hmm. One is that SWFA 329 scope. Mm -hmm. Just put it on and use that also to shoot far away. Dial, you hold with the reticle. If you want a more traditional second focal pen scope with some long-range capability, Vortex uh, HDLHT second focal pen scopes are under $1,000 in the US, 3 to 15 by 42, 3 to 15 by 50, and they are also reasonably lightweight. Quite mm -hmm. nice. Uh, Leopold VX5 is in that same, uh, in that same conversation. Uh, tracked Toric 3 to 15 by 42. You're yeah, looking for either second or front focal pen scope with about three or four on the low end. It's not too heavy. Right. And if I try to list all of them, uh, if I try to list all of them here, you will have enough material for eight podcasts. Uh, there's a lot of them. Okay. Uh, just pick pick one from the company that has good customer support mm -hmm. and has good enough field of view, and that has a reticle that's visible enough on low power. You know, I've I've used uh, Loophold my entire life, um, well, like their scopes. Perfect. And, but from the customer support standpoint, I got to say Vortex has been just phenomenal in the way that, I mean, you, you could be on Instagram and message them and they'll walk you through sighting in your rifle when you're, uh, on the range via a messenger system. Most big players right now do have good customer support. And a lot of it was driven by the pressure created by Vortex. Mm -hmm. Vortex has had that amazing customer support, arguably the longest, so mm -hmm. they're better at it, but it's generally good customer support right? Uh, across the board. Uh, there are some manufacturers still that insist on not doing this very well and they'll learn their lessons soon enough. So have you ever come out and had just blanket warnings for certain types of optics? Stay away? All the Amazon brands, Fiat, yeah. Monstrum, all that crap, just don't do it. Yeah. Uh, think of it this way. If that... It's selling a scope for 200 bucks and it has every feature known to men. Mm -hmm. If it sells for 200 bucks, that means the retailer makes, I don't know, 50, 60 bucks on it. Mm -hmm. Distributor, another 50 bucks. Mm -hmm. uh, then the manufacturer sold it to somebody else. So basically it costs 25 bucks to make. Mm -hmm. It has 16 optical elements, machined aluminum, turrets, all this sort of stuff. And it costs mm -hmm. 25 bucks to make. You're going to trust that. Yeah, no. Here's the catch. Every once in a while, somebody will find a good one, right? And he'll hit every forum saying that, yay, my $25 Huyachi or whatever it is. If you have any Russian audience, they will appreciate what I just said. Is <laughs> uh, just as amazing as a $5,000 Schmidt & Bender you overpaid by $4,900, right? It's not. Mm -hmm. You just happen to have a good one and it will fall apart on you eventually. 
-hmm. but since you will likely never use it, it'll sit in a safe to be pulled out and shown to unsuspecting victims occasionally. It will never fail on you because you're never going to do anything with it. Mm -hmm. If you use it, it'll die. Mm -hmm. There are cheap, simple scopes that have been made for a long time, right? If you are on a budget, go buy Burris Fulfilled 2 for $200, $250 made in the Philippines. They've been making it forever and a day. It's cheap to make because it's a simple scope. It is robust. Mm -hmm. Right. Fundamentally, there is the brands that are really crappy have been weeded out from most regular competitive landscape. They go through eBay, Amazon, basically they're trying to get to people who have not been around the gun world uh, long enough. Mm. Good okay. point. But if you stick with reputable brands or some of the smaller companies that were started by people from reputable brands, uh, Athlon, well, not as that small of a company anymore, good company, mm -hmm. Case came out of, guys came out of Bushnell, started their own, do really well. Attract, Attract Optics, small company out of New York, two guys from Nikon came out, started their own brand, amazing customer support, good guys, mm -hmm. small company, really take care of their customers. Uh, SWFA does a very good job, but, you know, we talked about Vortex and Leupold. Uh, mm -hmm. SIG changes stuff very quickly, sometimes I don't know what to make heads or tails of. Okay. I'm not impressed with budget Zeiss scopes, high-end stuff is good, it seems to be good. Mm -hmm. Budget stuff from Zeiss has so much variation that I don't know what to make out of it. Mm -hmm. uh, Bushnell is another company that's slightly mystifying to me, they're changing product lines so rapidly that for a guy like me who makes recommendations, it's totally useless. I can't just look at a scope and say it's good not. I actually use these things, I spend a lot of time with them. Right. right. If you're changing your product lines every year, I can't recommend your products because I don't have enough time, right? By the time I'm done evaluating it, you just discontinue it. Okay, great. That, right. that was helpful. Great. <laughs> uh, so I look at stuff that's, gonna, that's been out and made for a little while where I've been able to... And if I recommend something, then I go and track how it does for people who bought it for my recommendation. So I end up with a reasonably good feel of how mm -hmm. a product performs. So you will not find the recommendations on any of my websites uh, of something that just gets rotated every year. Mm -hmm. Because I can, in good faith, evaluate the performance. There's a time factor to it. Yeah, makes sense. So look for things either from very reputable companies uh, or look for things that have been made for a little while. Well, on that note, is there anything else that we should be touching on before we start looking to wrap it up? Uh, we haven't talked at all about observation optics. We didn't, not one bit. Uh, binoculars and uh, spotting scopes. Mm -hmm. If you're a hunter or a precision shooter, you should have a binocular. 100%. If you are primarily a shooter, you should be considering a binocular with a built-in laser rangefinder or a reticle, or both. Well, both mm -hmm. barely exists. They used to be much worse. Now they're actually getting pretty decent. Okay. To be fair, I still hunt with a conventional binocular. I use Vortex Razor UHD 10 by 50 and a separate Leica rangefinder. Mm -hmm. uh, but I'm carefully investigating all the binoculars with built-in laser rangefinders and they're getting increasingly better. Soon enough, there isn't going to be enough penalty on optics where I can just switch to that. There are already laser range-finding binoculars that do not have enough penalty on optics, but they're very expensive. Like the Leica, you know, 3200.com, $3,000 Leica Swarovski Zeiss. Mm -hmm. Binoculars with integrated laser rangefinders are amazing. Mm -hmm. 
I might still pick one up, but for now I'm okay with the separate ones. What about the SIG, the Kilos? They came uh, with a pretty so easy... I actually used the Kilo rangefinder for quite a while. Mm -hmm. The latest uh, Kilo 10K uh, LRF binocular I haven't seen yet. Yeah. So I really I, don't I, know. I've been impressed with their laser rangefinder capabilities. I yeah, think the, Leica's the, got better glass. Yeah. The LRF uh, on SIGs is very good, although Leica has very, very nice LRFs. I mean, I just switched from a SIG to a Leica uh, yeah. uh, dedicated laser rangefinder. Um, I can compromise in the binocular only so much. And as far as the laser rangefinder works, so it kind of depends on what you do, right? For hunting, do you really need to laser, uh, to laser that pronghorn at 8,000 yards? Mm -mm. Now, for long-range shooting, sometimes you want to be able to laser and do a ballistic solution fairly sure. far out, right? So, from hunting, for a hunting standpoint, I... I am not really willing to compromise on the quality of the binocular because mm -hmm. I'm going to spend a lot of more time staring through a binocular than lasing stuff. Mm -hmm. Okay, and if the animal is two thousand yards away, I'm not shooting it at that distance anyway. Right. And better modern laser rangefinders will raise will laser a, a, a large object at that distance. So I know roughly where that animal is. I don't have to mm -hmm. laser the actual animal. Just it being further than I can laser is already a piece of information. Okay. Good. So with the laser edge finding binoculars, is uh, up to a certain point, I'm not willing to sacrifice an optical quality. Okay. For, for precision PRS use and stuff like that, uh, get a high magnification, get, get a high quality 1518 power binocular. Because you'll mm -hmm. be staring through this thing a lot and looking through things with two eyes is much less fatiguing than with one eye. Mm-hmm. And everybody goes, oh, it's not that bad. My eye will just rest. No, it takes a long time. Until you sleep, your eye is not fully rested. If you're going to be glassing for a while and then shooting, mm -hmm. you want to cut down on eye fatigue. So I, I always will glass with my, um, my left eye because I'm shooting predominantly right eye dominant. I do you glass I, with a spotting scope? Yes. Yeah, glass with binoculars. Okay. So I'll, I'll do both binos and, and spotting scope, but you'd say doing both eyes, strain on both is better as opposed to straining uh, on. Yeah. So the, if you're only looking through the spotting scope with the left eye, your right eye is still straining. Less than the left, it's still straining. Okay. Because it's remember, it's the brain up? that's interpreting the images. Right. Okay. Good point. Uh, I went elk hunting in New Mexico. We never needed a spotting scope once. Mm -hmm. We used 10 or 12 power binoculars. Mm -hmm. Sheep hunting, we only needed a spotting scope to judge uh, the horns mm -hmm. for finding sheep and etc. If I wasn't going for the biggest trough, I wouldn't need the uh, uh, spotting scope. Right. But 15 or 18 power binoculars that a couple of people had ended up being extremely useful. Okay. Um, by... By high power binoculars on a tripod is quite a remarkable tool. You, you'll be amazed in how far you can see with what you don't think is much magnification. Um, a 50 power binocular will generally, over any length of time, will give you a better image than comparable quality 22-23 power spotter. Interesting. Less it's weight different for everyone, but this trade-off uh, is a little bit different for everyone, but that's the ballpark. I did okay. some tests a little while back. Uh, on uh, 20 power binoculars versus yeah. 15 power binoculars. 
versus a spotting scope. Uh, the 20 power binocular had 56 millimeter objective, so the exit pupils got a little bit too small. Okay. And for me, glassing off of the tripod, 15 to 18 power is where the sweet spot was. Okay. I could see really far away with not that much eye fatigue, and I could really glass for a long time. Interesting. Less weight in the pack, which is nice too. Mm -hmm. Now, if you are trophy hunting, you really need to look at antlers, and the animal is indeed far away. The spotting scope may not be a, a, a bad thing, but uh, I'm probably a less experienced hunter than you are, so uh, use your best judgment. Sure. But yeah. um, if I'm riding around in a 4x4, an ATV or something like that, I'll, I'll be happy to have a spotter in it, but I'm not going to hike with it uphill. Mm -hmm. Yeah, sheep hunting, I'll bring the spotting scope for just making mm -hmm. sure you're making that legal shot. But Correct. you're right, the ma majority of the work is done with your, your binos. Mm -hmm. And it's another thing, if you think you might be taking a longer shot, right? If there is a lightweight scope that gives you more magnification, and it's mm -hmm. a very high quality scope, is that a spotter? Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Here is, uh, that's a March 5 to 42 by 56. Really amazing optical quality. A little mm -hmm. heavier than I want on a sheep rifle, but it uh, takes less weight to put this on a nice long range rifle than to carry an extra spotter. That's a good point. It goes up to 40 power. Yeah, it's a good consideration. Right. So there is more than one way to skin a cat. Um, spotting scopes do have their place, but for me that place is not in my backpack. I did not get this range? fat by doing unnecessary exercise. <laughs> so you're using, using your spotting scope on the range? On the range all the time. Yeah. Um, but when I'm shooting ARs and stuff like that, when I'm doing precision stuff, I have enough magnification in the rifle scope. So I'll mm -hmm. use a spotting scope if I'm setting up behind a shooter, if I'm shooting with somebody, I set up behind them, I want to look at the trace, sure. that kind of stuff. I'm not going to set up my rifle behind somebody shooting. Mm -hmm. It would be, I mean, I'm okay with it, but the guy in front of my rifle might they be. They might not be. <laughs> yeah. What oh. are your thoughts on those COA spotting scopes? Um, the... But once again, I'm a shooter, not, not a birder. I will not buy a spotting scope without a reticle. Okay. If I am spotting for somebody, I need the reticle to call out corrections. Mm -hmm. If I'm trying to find something, I can use the reticle for quick uh, range estimation. Mm -hmm. Since I'm not trying to distinguish a calibre uh, eating a mosquito uh, three miles out, the reticle mm -hmm. does not get in my way. Cover. Mm -hmm. Uh, doesn't like guns, so they uh, refuse to put a reticle in their rifles, in their spotting scopes. Yeah, unfortunately. <sighs> and so what, what reticle spotting scope uh, are you currently using? I use an Athlon uh, RS uh, UHD, mm -hmm. Athlon Kronos. Uh, they have a kind of a field spotter with a reticle. I, I helped them uh, conceptualize those radicals so they work well for me. Very nice. If I could afford it, I'd be using a handsold. It's mm. really expensive. Mm -hmm. uh, there's another spotter coming out to the market soon. They haven't announced it yet, which, if all goes well, should work kind of like the handsold for less money. I might pick that one up. Okay. Um, so that's going to be interesting. A Vortex Razor has a reticle eyepiece for the 85mm spotter. It's actually quite nice. Mm -hmm. 
for quite a while I used the um, Swarovski STR spotting scope with a projected uh, illuminated reticle. That was very, very nice. Yeah. Eventually sold it and used hand-sold for a while. I think hand-sold had better depth of field, a little bit better. Okay. Both are very nice, expensive though. Right, yeah. In practical terms, the one I use the most is the Athlon RS uh, UHD. And I have a, I think it's a 22 power eyepiece with a reticle. And that's basically enough for my purposes. I don't really need more than that. And it's small and light and I can move it around easily. Perfect. And uh, if I want a more of a field spot it takes something into the field, I actually use this guy. This is also Athlon. This is uh, Kronos. It's a 7 to 42 magnification, 50, uh, 60 millimeter objective. Mm. Optically, it's not the most amazing scope, but it is quite good. Mm -hmm. But because it goes down to 7 power, I can use it as a handheld binocular when I need to. Right. So I actually use this quite a lot. It's good enough for my purposes. Well, I think we've uh, we've kind of covered the broad gamut about you, your background, mm -hmm. about uh, darklordofoptics.com. Uh, gives people some food for thought when thinking about uh, rifle scopes and binoculars and spotting scopes. Um, I think uh, from a, a more technical, in-depth sort of standpoint, would love to, to uh, do a deep dive into some of the into some of the uh, optics and uh, how they work and how people should be setting them up properly. But I think that's something probably safe for uh, for a future podcast. Food for thought. Go shoot. Just shoot. Mm hmm. If you don't shoot, you do not know what you need. Mm -hmm. Shoot in different lighting conditions. Shoot from different shooting positions. Get off the bench. Shoot with the rear of the rifle unsupported. It will change how you look at rifle scopes. Yeah, it will. Shoot sitting, standing, kneeling, front supported, rear supported. Learn to shoot with a sling. Learn to shoot prone with a sling. Learn to shoot kneeling with a sling that supports you slightly. If you're basing your rifle scope decision based on, uh, if you're basing your rifle scope decisions primarily on shooting from the bench at 100 yards, you're doing it wrong. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a hell of a lot more to it than just that. The choice of a rifle scope is primarily driven by the application not by the gun you have it sitting on. I keep on hearing this nonsense, $1,000 gun need a $1,000 scope. Mm -hmm. No, bullshit. The scope has to be matched to the targets you're shooting, how far away you're shooting them, what lighting conditions you're shooting them with, and the requirements for the eye box, meaning shooting positions. Mm -hmm. I have not said anything about what rifle it's on. Mm -hmm. I've had $5,000 rifles, uh, rifle scopes on $500 rifles. They were great. Mm -hmm. have had, if you only shoot off the bench, you can put a $500 scope and a $5,000 rifle, it'll work great. Mm -hmm. okay. It's not about the rifle, it's about what you do with it. That's how you choose a scope. Ilya, thank you very much for Absolutely being on this Social Core podcast. Really, really enjoyed our conversation and learned a lot. Oh, excellent. Um, it was a nice conversation, I like it. We should do this again.